0: We love to drink. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Our society loves to drink. We encourage alcohol to cope, to celebrate, to cook, to eat, or just to get through a tough week. I mean, you heard the phrases, mama needs a drink, pizza and beer, unwind with a glass of wine after a long day. These are common phrases we hear every day. Do we collectively have a drinking problem? It's possible. But as I always do in this podcast, I wanted to go deeper and get more personal. And I've been following a couple's journey into sobriety. Matt and Megan Heather are two of my favorite people, and they have been so brave to share their stories with us for a two-part series. Today's episode is about Matt's journey into trying to measure up to far-reaching standards, and his gripping spiral into alcoholism and addiction while remaining pretty functional in society. He also recounts for us his harrowing, harrowing experience in rehab and life into sobriety. You'll hear Matt's wife Megan's experience in part two called Getting Him Sober, which will air next week. As you can tell, these are really important and um, and, and really important stories that I think you can relate to or will know people that maybe find some similarities or relatability in these stories. I hope you'll share this episode. It could save someone's life. And if you're struggling or suspect someone you know is, you can call the National Drug and Alcohol Treatment Hotline at 1-800-662-HELP. 4357-HELP. Here's part one of my conversation with Matt and Megan. So I know that this is um, is a big deal for you to be here and sharing this, even though it is not uh, a secret. Um, so I'm really grateful for you for that. And I'd love for you to share your story if you would.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. It's not something that I've been uh, shouting from the rooftops or running the social on, but it's also not something that I've been shying away from. Mm. I'm actually pretty proud of it, and so if it, like, comes up organically in conversation, I'll bring it up, but I'm also not trying to force a topic on people or make it all weird or, like, bring it up in job interviews or that sort of thing, but at the same time, it's uh, it's a huge part of my life and it's a huge part of who I am.
0: So where did it start?
1: Uh, well, um... So, in in general, they say, and and I'll take a step back, the science or the understanding of addiction is really, really underfunded and not really understood, as maybe some of the other uh, diseases out there. And some people actually shake their head and say, "Well, it's is it really a disease?" uh i mean insurance pays for it so some people think it is (laughs) that that Uh, equals disease yeah and it's the you know they say it's a disease of not just the body but of the mind too um but because there's not as much empathy for it a lot of money doesn't necessarily go towards it so there's not a big understanding of it um to begin with um gosh where was i going with that
0: where Where it started where did it start
1: (laughs) yeah so okay there you go family of origin um, so they, they say about 50% comes from uh, genetics. So I have a lot of addiction in my, in my uh, genetics in my family. And then they say the other half of it comes from just, well, life. Um, and whether it's uh, certain things that maybe happen to you or maybe expectations you don't live up to or noise going on inside your head, running real fast, uh, your brain running real fast or whatever, it's, uh, you know, different things can lead to that. And let's see, I was a really, really strong, good student, um, really, gosh, did everything, quote unquote, the right way. Um, And then when I started finding my voice, I guess, if you will, in high school, I started uh, doing things maybe just slowly, little by little, um, a little against, you know, what common, you know, whatever, whatever they wanted you to do. And uh, in high school, I maybe, you know, not maybe, I did start smoking a lot of pot and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> um, didn't really drink because it was, well, it was just easier to get pot in high school. And uh, then I went to college. Um, what kind of high school did you go to? <laughs> I
2: was going to say, I think that's an important ad. <laughs> no. You don't have to name it. Uh, I went to a private high school. Okay. And, uh, oh, very, very private high school.
1: Yeah. And it was, I mean, I, I worked my, my tail off. It was a great school and that sort of thing. But I think because I, I mean, I was the kid that did like five hours of homework on Sundays, um, three hours every weeknight. So I think that in my free time, it was probably, my guess is to escape. I mean, I just told myself it was um, just to, to have fun or whatever, but I guess it was to, to feel different and not to stop the spinning in my head of all the things that I have to do. I mean, even now, I feel like uh, in my head is just like a running checklist of stuff. Um, but I went away to school um, to a Catholic university that was pretty big on drinking, and that was a lot easier to get. Like, for example, in the dorms, You were allowed to drink. You didn't even have to be 21 because they didn't want you going off campus. Mm. And, uh, well, I lived a pretty sheltered life in high school. So when I was left to my own devices and time, I mean, I really just kind of hammered anything that was fun. Um, My first year of college, the, the dorms got Ethernet, Internet. So, like, that was relatively new for me.
0: Porn all day, all <laughs> night.
1: <laughs> uh, this is kind of embarrassing, but I was, like, looking up things that were, like, nostalgia for my childhood, like He-Man or G.I. Joe. Because, like, just, I mean, if you think about it now, like, those things and those memories, like, you, had, you didn't have any visuals to go back on unless maybe you had the toys or something. Right. I mean, you just, you didn't have access to information. So, I was just constantly looking at things, playing different games um, or going out to the bars mm. um, quite a bit. Um, so my drinking started there and uh, I mean it just I was just a heavy drinker all through my 20s
0: Did your peers drink like that too or did you feel like this is normal because this is What people do the wheels are kind of off or did you feel like I need a little bit of extra
1: At the time and this is a huge uh, issue of mine is this the denial and um yeah, everyone else was doing the exact same thing in my head. Mm-hmm. And when we went out and partied, everyone was getting just as fucked up. Um, but I never stopped. Mm. I, I went until I passed out. When you say you didn't have time. a governor,
2: like that's right. been a consistent thing. You yeah. didn't have a, a self-awareness to stop.
1: I always wanted more. And that's that's what addiction is. It's not just the actual substance. It's not like, hey, I'm addicted to alcohol and that's it. I'm addicted to more, more of pretty much anything that, you know, has the dopamine hits or just, you know, kind of gets, you know, me thinking of, uh, I don't know what's, what's fun or whatever. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I it was college, so we all were getting fucked up. So, I mean, that, that probably is what made it easier for me to say that it was normal and everyone else was doing the same thing. Um, but, uh, I mean, I ended up, uh, not flunking out because I wasn't keeping up. I mean, I lasted a year and a half. Um, you did flunk years. out or you did not? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I flunked out. And I my, my denial was so thick that I just, I minimized the heck out of it. And like, it was almost like it wasn't even happening. Mm. Um, so I came home and, you know, the letter was waiting, I guess, with my parents. Uh, and uh, obviously, they were devastated. You know, super expensive school that I just worked so hard to get into. And it was all kind of thrown away. And uh, we tried to pull some relationship strings and kind of got some sort of situation worked out, whereas if I was able to go to the school next to it and get a three point, um, then I'd be able to get back in. And uh, I started off great. Everything was cool. But then started going out again and, you know, same pretty much same thing happened. Uh, So I didn't live up to my to my three point (laughs) there. And uh, then I came back home and uh, we'll just say it wasn't exactly a welcome situation. I was like, well, what the heck am I gonna do with my life? And I was very fortunate that just through, again, relationships, which are just so important, I um, had done internships in the summers, which like this is before really internships were a big thing. <clears throat> so I had places that I had interned and in that were willing to give me a job. So it was great. So I started in uh, the marketing and advertising. And uh, even though, you know, you're supposed to have a degree. And so I was, you know, taking classes at night and whatnot, but um, I ended up working my tail off, same work ethic. And then you know, once I stopped punching the clock, I mean, I didn't have a family to go home to, so I'd work excessive hours. Um, and then at night, you know, same thing. I just uh, I'd party real hard. I mean, not every night. This was definitely a gradual thing over the years to work out more and more and more and more. Um, but when I did do it, it was it was uh, excess.
0: So at that time, so you guys are sort of around my age. You're younger than me, but anyway, back then, um, having. Therapy at that time wasn't as readily available or even accessible from a shame perspective there was a lot of Mm. stigma more stigma than there is now where i feel like it's it's um it's a lot easier to say i'm struggling now than it was then was that part of your journey back then
1: um and were you open
0: to it if if so
1: yeah because i was uh the family of origin i came from was so black and white right and wrong color inside the lines that when there was you know when i got caught smoking pot or when i got caught drinking underage there were heavy consequences um at the time it was being grounded for two months at a time or going to therapy um so i had started going to see uh, you know a young male adolescent uh, specialized therapist um and i actually really came to like him but I wasn't overly honest. Um, I was still in denial about how much I drank. And then, sure, there was still some of the machismo. Um, I grew up with uh, a single mom. And my dad was involved in my life until high school when we moved away. Um, but I also grew up with my grandma, too. So I had a, a lot of, um, you know, female influence. Um, which, I don't know if that made me then try to try a little extra hard to, to be a little bit more macho. Um, but <laughs> at the same time... Inside, I think I was definitely or I am definitely on the more sensitive side of things. So
0: Did you always feel sensitive?
1: I think looking back or do you feel like looking back for sure, but I I would never admit it. I didn't I didn't realize it because I didn't want it to be like that I, I like still part of my work right now is recognizing my feelings and the hardest part is is that So much in my head doesn't when it doesn't want things to be true It won't let me see that it's actually happening. So uh, one of the biggest things I, I'm continually working on is my sense of awareness. So back then, zero sense of awareness.
2: Well, can so, we just go back to, to your denial system, you and your family? Like you, you, you're so smart, you would outsmart everything. Like yeah, you mm-hmm. can convince yourself mm-hmm. of anything. So yeah,
1: justification. Like, right. but like in a in a in a theorem, you know, lawyer, pragmatic, sort of build the like. Steps to use on. an
2: example, when you funked out of school, you went and got like a big person job, started making decent money. Yeah. And you're like, I don't need the degree. I, it doesn't matter. I have a mm-hmm. success. Like and because you're so right. intelligent, you've always been able to continue to blossom despite all this chaos that has been happening beneath the surface. Yeah.
1: And I don't think I've told you this, but the reason I told myself I flunked out is because of the distractions. It wasn't the alcohol It was because there were so many distractions, like mm. the, the internet example I just gave. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, I'm still even putting it on that. Um, <laughs> so it was the distractions of, Alcohol, internet, girls, friends—you uh, know, whatever the case. Anything may that be. was
2: more fun than what you were supposed to be doing,
1: right? Because that dopamine hit, right? And I also blamed pot. I was like, God, I must have smoked so much pot it took away my drive. That—that that had to be it. So that's what it was. So it was all of that, but not addiction. No, I'm not addicted. Even though my dad was addicted, other family members—I mean, I mean—the writing was on the wall. Even other people were telling me that, and I hated it hated hearing what it, yeah
0: so i'm i imagine that you may have dated people or people that were close to you that said matt you gotta slow down you know how how did those relationships um evolve or how did you respond to those
1: i'd imagine not very favorably and it just <laughs> became kind of like a taboo Topic I probably made it or I'm sure I made it really uncomfortable for people to approach me about it
2: I also don't think anyone quite knew it was always just like bubbling beneath the surface
1: I walked the line like well enough to where I kept my shit together well enough But I could fall off any and and I did I'd make big mistakes and I'd get in trouble for it But I was relatively affable enough that people would forgive me or I would I would sincerely be incredibly apologetic about something and I'd get forgiven so I was able to kind of leverage some charisma for my fuck-ups and then walk a close enough line to still have accomplishments you mm. also
2: have a huge threshold for anxiety like things that would make people crazy like I think you will just wait until you figure it out and it works out so no, there was never like nothing ever bottoms out for you or it didn't for a really 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 long time
1: yeah, I have a unhealthy philosophy that everything's always going to work out, which actually works for me now it pretty well. It doesn't sound unhealthy. <laughs> At the time, it was. Um, and uh, when things were bothersome, I mean, that that's, I guess, maybe, or I know that's why I would escape and I would drink because then I would just turn everything off. And then I would... Turn into what I thought was the most popular guy in the room and super oh funny. God. And I yeah. wish you
2: could meet this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was like the definition of a functional alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Like that was the most crazy-making part about it.
0: So I, I think what I'm what I'm hearing through this is how the denial aspect, the you know, um, trying to overcompensate, especially when it came to relationships. And I think it is so much more common because. Alcohol is so celebrated, at least in this country, yeah. that it made it. Um, it's, it's easy to not have a clear line of what, you know, and and really as we have these conversations today, of what is the definition of alcoholic or or having a problem, you know, because it it um it there's there's such a spectrum. But please let's go back to so okay so now you have. Figured out how to get a job and make a decent amount of money. Mm-hmm. Then what happens? And do you do you have any sense that something is wrong, or do you feel like things no. are clicking along? No, clicking along.
1: No, uh, it was everyone else's problem with me. Um, you know, my, my mom was pretty mad at me for what happened in college, and I yeah. wasn't. Fi- I wasn't following the golden path of. You know, she she wasn't saying like you know be a doctor, be a lawyer, or anything like that. But it wasn't. You know, trip into. Uh, you know, a career in marketing and advertising, which is kind of how it went. So, um, you know, she was married to an alcoholic, so she knew. Did all she the know? Signs.
0: Did she know at that time?
1: Yeah, she knew. 100%. Yeah, percent, and and it was her worst, worst fear come true. Mm. And so she was trying to do everything she could to like not make it. And so you can imagine the, the just the pain that she had and the PTSD all that kind of stuff, the, the sure, PTSD, PTSD about it through. So I mean, it was it's
0: generational trauma. Yeah.
1: So I was constantly like knew that there was that level of dissatisfaction. So I was trying to prove it wrong. But in my own core being, it wasn't doing it the right way or so to speak. So I never actually really felt like it was it was fulfilled. Um, But, yeah, I kept clicking along, uh, going to work every day, showing up because that was Um, I'm actually a good creature of of habit and and structure when I'm placed and forced into it, um, which will come up later on how the wheels came off. Um, So I did pretty well in my career and kept progressing. And um, and as far as my partying went, uh, I mean, you you hit on it yourself. It's a celebrated thing, so there's always a reason to drink. There's always a certain sporting event. And, you know, I, I was in Detroit in my 20s and 30s, The Detroit basketball and hockey teams, for example, were doing really well in the playoffs. So they're on. Time to celebrate. Time to celebrate. Uh, Monday night football, Thursday night football. I mean, Friday and Saturdays were givens. Absolutely. Thursdays, just like kind of college, was a party night. So then, you know, maybe I'd take Sunday, Monday off or sometimes Tuesday. But in general, there was always a reason um, to party. So. Everyone around me was I could find someone doing it right the the, the common denominators. It was always me <laughs> I was always. <laughs> You're always it. down right and um Because I did good work. I sometimes would get slack for maybe not coming in right at eight or nine or whatever because um, I would stay into the evenings into the AMs, Whatever I would do were you blackout
0: drunk or what did that look like? Yeah, what was drunk
1: matt like? <laughs> oh gosh, I mean it depends um sometimes i'd be the I life of the tell party so many stories but I won't. yeah well no you, i mean go ahead well, i mean by the time i met megan it was it was not like it was not fun party Matt like college well
2: no it would start off fun party and you'd get like funnier and louder and more like hey i met Heather. nice to meet you and <laughs> then it's like he'd reach a certain point and he wouldn't be like you know passing out on her front lawn although that had did happen yeah. a handful of times mm-hmm. um he would basically like be able to walk and talk but like
1: Autopilot Like
2: autopilot Like no one was there Yeah He wasn't He's, he's blackout yes yeah. But he would like Lose his motor skills I'd but, become an But introvert. could function Could function in a party And just be like a drunk guy But really There was no one there mm. But blackout was On the right Yeah every
1: morning I was waking up Trying to piece together What the end of the night Looked like uh,
2: But was that fun You know like uh, Oh man I I got no. blackout about, again Wait how about When no. I used to find you Remember in our like the first house in Williamsbury, you'd be in the garage, like falling asleep in a chair
1: Yeah, yeah. with I like mean, a cigarette in his hand. Oh my gosh. I've fallen asleep in my car, passed out, passed out in my car. I mean, I've passed out all sorts of places and the anxiety is ridiculous because uh, as your body tries to heal from, you know, hangovers or whatever, there's just the alcohol causes more anxiety. I mean, it's a vicious cycle. Um, So the anxiety every single morning was just, it it ended up becoming so frequent that that's just how I thought life was. Mm. That's how every day of my life ended up being when I was in my, you know, mid later 30s.
0: But at a certain age... That kind of experience is cool, like, mm. oh, look what happened, you know, yeah. like found him in the bushes again, and yeah. it's funny, you know, yeah. and at some point, it doesn't become funny
1: anymore. No, because it was always me that I, I, I'd i become embarrassed, and I'd become... Um, defensive. Defensive. Mm-hmm. Very, very defensive. Um, and I'd try to keep it together, and I'd try to justify, well, it wasn't really that bad. I mean, I still... Even talking about it now, watch. I guarantee you I'll probably try to correct Megan a few times and be like, well, it wasn't exactly like that.
2: It's mm. called gaslighting, I think, <laughs> is the formal yeah. medical term.
1: Uh, gaslighting is a whole other thing that I was doing. Um, well, I mean, since we're there, that's basically um, kind of, again, how I was, I'd pragmatically justify things. I would do it so to make Megan think she was the one that was crazy. So mm. it would be kind of like flipping the script um, and making it so... Not only was I defensive, but I'd get so defensive, I'd go on the offensive mm-hmm. on a little bit. And so then she would feel stupid, which is a horrible, horrible thing that, I mean, that was one of the things that ended up um, getting me uh, sober was mm-hmm. was recognizing how much pain and destruction I caused just from that tactic alone.
0: Yeah. So I think, I think there's, there's a little bit to dig there because if it is Matt's there, you're functioning you're saying what you need to say, but they're, you're not there. Like you said, like you, the, the lights were out, but you would still walk and talk and do what you need mm. to do. You know, there there's sloppy drunk, there's functional drunk, there's so many different variations of what drunk looks like for mm. people, you know? And there are some, like I have a friend who, um, no matter how drunk she got, you'd never know she was drunk. Mm. You know, would it, would it be obvious where that switch would go off, where? It was for me. Yeah, I probably think. not yeah. for me, for Megan. For
2: me it was. Other people, not so much, because mm-hmm. he would hold, because he's so manipulative. He would hold it together up until like a certain point. Mm-hmm. And then it would he would fall apart. But like while we were in public at a party, he would just, everyone would know he was intoxicated, but they didn't know it was to that
1: extreme.
0: Mm-hmm. What I mean. did it feel like for you?
1: I mean, for the longest time, um, I mean, it's it's a lot of diminishing returns over years, but for the longest time, it was it was euphoric. It was a high um, at, at first. I mean, alcohol is a depressant, so that's why the latter stages uh, are, aren't quite highs. But in the moment, I was having the time of my life, um, so it would it would feel great up until a certain point where it would just be like I'd stop getting the high, but I would still th- keep trying to chase it. And then it would go to blackout, so I wouldn't even, you know, realize what I was doing. Yet I would still—that's the craziest thing. I'd be on autopilot, but you still think you're in control. Um, it's, it's really weird.
2: You'd still need more drinks. Like Always. you'd be taking beers to bed.
1: Always. Like the f- and the fear exactly. of not having, like I'd bring a beer to bed sometimes, not because I actually was going to drink it, but the fear of not having it, hmm. not being able to get it, was uh, was incredibly uh, powerful.
0: Did it feel like, I, I'm wondering, at any point, were you like, you know, I need to slow down. Let me just chill. Yeah. You know, what did that look like when you were trying to put the governor on, as yeah. you said?
1: It was always external forces. So a DUI, Somebody's mad at you. Someone's mad at me. A right. girlfriend. Uh, I mean, I used to joke, and I shouldn't even say it was a joke, but Megan and I would get into quarterly fights because she'd get fed up. And it happened once a quarter where she'd rip me a new one totally justifiably. And I would feel incredibly remorseful. And it always looked different each quarter on how I would go about trying to scale it back. You know, okay, well, I'm just going to drink beer. I'm only going to drink two nights a week or three nights a week or whatever. And it would last for a little while, but then eventually it would just go back to the way it always was.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. Did you feel bad opening up that first beer? Like, I kind of need this.
1: No, because I would have justified it. I mean, that's like, (laughs) as the other crazy thing is like I never had a desire internally a true desire to stop I didn't think I was an alcoholic I didn't have any sort of uh spirituality I was always like oh science 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 there's no god science 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 and um so funny your kids
0: are in catholic school and you went to catholic university
1: (laughs) yeah I grew up catholic too um but it was just a stupid ideation in my head and yet I would pray this is the only thing I'd ever pray for that I wasn't an alcoholic. Hmm. Because not because of, because I liked it so much, not because I didn't want to be doing what I was doing and the, the, the causes and effects, but because I enjoyed it that much, I didn't want to have to stop. That's how much I liked it. And that alone didn't even make me realize that, I mean, it's crazy. That itself should have told me that it was it. But because I was either achieving things or I could quote unquote stop when I wanted to uh i told myself you know i had a drinking problem but i wasn't an alcoholic i had a drinking problem but i wasn't alcoholic
0: so at this point did you have kids
1: um i mean so i don't know where we are but uh so the 20s i parted my asses off 30s parted my asses off we got a house and then i would start doing it by myself so that's that's probably a whole other phase
2: 2009
1: 2009 2010 yeah because living in my own house versus living with megan in a friend's house or another girlfriend or whatever the case may be <clears throat> this was the first time i bought a house and i could sit on my back porch and drink by myself nobody's watching you right. well
2: not only that it was like a, the right house in the right neighborhood so like it further bolsters the story of like if i had a problem i couldn't do this mm. right
0: hmm
1: yeah So, uh, so the thirties, that's when I say thirties, not 1930s, my age, (laughs) clear, (laughs) (laughs) um, it, it, uh, it was, it was just more of the same. And then the drinking was like, it was dull. Now I always did drink beer at parties. Sure. I drink shots and stuff, but that was another method of, of my justification. Well, if I'm just sticking to beer, I'm not drinking a fifth of, you know, whatever living under a bridge. You know, uh, just sl- waking up in the middle of the night slamming bottles. No, I'm just drinking 10 beers, 12 beers uh, every night before I go to bed and um, carrying on with my life and doing fine, get off my back.
2: But in, I think it started getting worse in the 30s, you know, somewhere after 2009. And then there was a point where we were going to move to North Carolina mm. and we didn't. You took a job and yeah. you traveled every single week and with yeah. a hotel. And I think that's when the proverbial wheels started coming off he, again it lost started the governor shaking yeah the yeah. wheels
1: started shaking the car started shaking it was um I, I took a promotion that um had a, a satellite office in north carolina and we were going to move there and for whatever reason that it was kind of up in the in the wings for an extended period of time so in the meantime i was traveling there every single week so two to four nights a week i'd be going there by myself and then no one was looking over my shoulder right even though i was at home megan was still upstairs i still need to come to bed i still she knew what time i was getting up or whatever when i was you know uh in in north carolina where um you know i was running the office or the geography or whatever no one was looking over my shoulder um and i was still going into work and doing but i was going into work on on my terms and uh you know i'd work the job was kind of crazy so i was working all night and um but i was also able to to drink all night Hmm.
2: Do we have kids then? I can't remember. I think we might have.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, because that happened in 2015. So that's when, uh, so we had Claire, yeah, yeah, and Caitlin was just born. So, um,
2: like I remember being super pregnant. I was on bed rest, and like, I remember specifically getting in a ginormous argument. You were so wasted one night, mm. and it was like two weeks before my due date, and arguing with you, like, how are we going to the hospital? Like, somebody has to come yeah. with me. Someone, and you're like take uber. a fucking taxi no take an uber
1: so, again i think so here i'm justifying right i said no we'll take a taxi we'll call an uber <laughs> so that's and how i'm was...
2: like can't you just stay sober like it's our first yeah. kid can no. you just be sober nope. the... and I then and then i two weeks not that night we had a huge fight because i wanted him to stop drinking you we probably two weeks later did have a child our first child and after delivery you went to quote unquote go get me some food and came back like four hours later
1: yeah, wasted. I I went and drank a twelve pack of beer and mm. and called uh, friends or whoever on the phone. Sat in my car.
2: Well, I was starving after
0: like being in labor for right. oh, fifteen my hours.
1: God. The level of selfishness was through the roof. Like, and I had no idea.
0: Did you feel like a piece of shit at this time? You had no idea this was no. happening. No, everyone else too is a piece of to shit. To at him, him.
1: Mm. I was too drunk. To in the mornings, I did every single morning. Mm. I did. Yeah, but as the day goes on, you you feel different when you start feeling better. Um and you start wanting it again, then back to back to selfish man.
0: Is it, how, what was like the bounce back like? Did you have rough mornings? And was, you know, were you getting evil eyes from Megan? You know, oh, like yeah. how to- Rage. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Rage. <laughs> Rage. just Rage, like, not evil eye. Rage. Like slamming yeah. of
2: doors. Yeah. Very passive aggressive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was like a third kid. I'd get everyone ready and everything and then mm-hmm. be like, here's the one, like take this child, this way. you know, this is where you have to go. Mm-hmm. but that you didn't really care.
1: <laughs> You're right. I didn't care. I mean, I, I want to think I cared, but um, yeah, I guess. And I then right around that time, actions. you
2: started coming home and I would notice black garbage bags in the back of your car, mm-hmm. which I eventually figured out was there's some gas station that had black mm-hmm. garbage bags that you would buy a six pack mm-hmm. on the way home. I don't think you drank it on the way home, but you right. would drink it before dinner or something like that.
1: Right. So Megan's, cool and so she wasn't always trying to be up in my shit um so i wasn't the person like hiding booze or liquor under couch cushions or in cabinets because i didn't have to because she wasn't like going to look for it Mm. but i wasn't being out in the open with it so yeah um i would i would have these bags of six packs and in the back of my car and, uh, you know, come home and be like, oh, hey, I'm going to go cut the take lawn. A confer- no, take a conference take call. Take a conference call, yeah, whatever. And then quickly slam three or four or something like that. Um, and then it was just whatever breaks I would have. So, like, I wasn't living, I wasn't filling my life with, in gaps, with filled with alcohol. I was filling my drinking life with family situations. So, like, if I don't know if that makes sense. Like, yeah alcohol was my higher power that was my objective at this point of everything every thought in my brain was when am I going to get my next drink whether I wanted to admit it or not that's what was driving me so okay hey I can go play with my kids for an hour then I'll be able to I wouldn't say sneak away because that sounds bad I would you know take a step outside to or do you take whatever. them for a walk we had like remember we had that yeah.
2: purple or that pink push car and there yeah. was a cup holder yeah You'd take them for a walk and drink, right? Mm.
1: The cup holders suck though because it the, would spill the everywhere. vibrations, <laughs> yeah. It would cause it would spill, <laughs> uh, but yeah. I mean, I would uh put you know beers in my pockets. I mean, everything had to be a drinking related, but it wasn't again, it wasn't like I was sitting there just slamming beers like you would maybe think about an animal house or whatever. Right. It was just gradually having a beer, you know, every hour here and there, fitting it in that just ended up adding up to. 10 beers a night, you know, well, was it was good, beer and
2: cigarettes. Like I yeah. can't even ever recall kissing you and not having you smell like beer yeah. or cigarettes. So yeah,
1: we hadn't, we hadn't said that, uh, Smoker too, And those two things go hand in hand, oral mm-hmm. fixation, one after the other, one feeds a craving for the next.
0: You must've been shitting bricks, Megan, at <laughs> this point, you know, having these two little kids and not feeling like the, you guys are on the same page on that.
2: We're just raging, but I didn't know that I was internally raging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just
0: full of anger, like
2: seething. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: That must have been really hard to, you know, every time you open up a beer and then Megan's like, fuck, here it goes again.
2: Well, it would always be an argument. He'd be like, I'm going to go outside real quick. I have to, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. And remember I used to say like, there's a time warp and you'd be like, you'd literally argue with me and be like, I was only out there for three minutes. And I'm like, you went out there 45 minutes ago. We'd have this argument all the time, but I had just because alcoholism is such a slow, steady Mm -hmm. increase, Mm -hmm. you don't even realize it's happening. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't shitting bricks because this was just my life. Like, Mm -hmm. and I was also so afraid to admit it because I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I just kept thinking, I was so like addicted to the idea that it would get better. Like, you know, when you're younger, like, okay, we were kind of partiers, fine. Then it's like, (laughs) okay, well, we. You know make good money we don't have kids and then you think well now we have kids like obviously this is gonna change the dynamic and then you know you just keep thinking like you just you I don't know you want to believe it's gonna get better Mm. until you finally admit that it's not
0: so where was your breaking point
2: so I have so many we can can talk about it later but you can tell your
0: version of it (laughs) we can we can tell your version later yeah
1: (laughs) So we moved to Atlanta, and uh, my drinking was at its its max back at home. Wait, can um, we talk about
2: the day we moved to Atlanta? Sure. What year was this? Two two thousand eighteen. So, so not too long ago. Not too long mm-hmm. ago, mm-hmm. you were like partying with the movers.
1: Well, I wasn't partying with them. They were. I was partying amongst them, like hiding amongst them and they were giving me tips when megan was at home or around but drinking I got beer hammered. i got hammered on our on our move so I was like you totally barely packed this. any
2: boxes my mom packed most of them i yeah. cleaned out like what i don't even know how big our house was Thirty six hundred square feet yeah. and
1: i justified it that i was you know traffic control directing traffic telling people what to do but really i was just walking from room to room probably being very little help um
2: like i think even my mom was mad at that point like what I'm is sure. he doing i'm sure but anyway continue so we moved to atlanta in 2018 that's yeah. my little story that he literally yeah. drank with the movers which i was like they are like basically homeless and put furniture <laughs> in a truck why are you hanging out with them <laughs>
1: yeah i was i was actually in the um remember that shed we had
2: you're talking about on the morning Morningside?
1: yeah yeah that's where i was i was drinking and they'd knock on the door and be like yo your female's home I'm like oh, okay <laughs> <hell's the> home. <laughs> um, So when we got to Atlanta and my drinking was at its max, um, I didn't have an office to go into. I was working remote. So uh, I truly had no one looking over my shoulder. Megan was going into the office. I was home alone all day. Granted,
2: we're in a new city where I know no one mm and have zero support system. Yeah.
1: Right. right. And so then truly no one was... was, uh, I didn't have any, any schedule to keep me aligned, to not do things, to not drive certain places, or do whatever. Like I just, I could do whatever I wanted. And, uh, that's really left to my own devices when the wheels came off. And I wouldn't admit to myself that, uh, I was an alcoholic. I started because I realized how upset Matt, Megan was. I was like, all right, what do I need to do that I haven't done before? Okay. I'm going to go to a therapist And Talk about my drinking problem and see how we can maybe scale that back and I wouldn't do anything He said except he recommended some some pill that's supposed to reduce cravings or whatever And I I would take that and I would drink on that. It would make me throw up and I'd keep drinking. It was stupid, but um, So you thought at
0: this point you had a problem.
1: Yeah, I knew I had a problem Yeah, but
2: but after like a year of living in Atlanta like when you started having like physical
1: so that's what I was just about to get to is When I finally admitted that it was like, oh shit, is when I what I got what you call the three S's, the shit shake sweats. So it sweat through the night. I wasn't eating because it's a like
2: literally would not eat except for like once in a while at three in the morning you'd order like Uber Eats McDonald's. Eating
1: was uncomfortable. Like it was forcing food down my throat. I was Mm. I was purely drinking, you know, three thousand calories a day or something equivalent of that um so food was was not it and... you didn't
2: sleep in a bed you just we, we had like a you stayed in the ba- it wasn't a basement but like the first floor with mm-hmm. the couch you don't yeah. need like he, he stopped showering like you for the <laughs> most I part stop showering <laughs> like why not, do you like, stop showering i, I don't think just, i did but maybe <laughs> like you didn't it wasn't as frequent like you were just like you you lost yourself care except for when you had to go put on your like matt heather suit face you'd you'd put on the needlepoint belt and the ralph Lauren shirt and be like great i
1: would overcompensate all the shit that i was feeling inside by trying to look a certain part outside like i could walk into a country club any any day
2: you should ask about this later because this goes to there's a good story about that specifically and the treatment
1: (laughs) yeah um so uh yeah, uh, the, the the three S's. And when I started getting the shakes in the morning, um, which was uh, when alcohol was out of my body, and when I would start, the first thing was just like, Megan, get out of the house, get out of the house, get out of the house, so I could finally crack my first beer. That's when it was like, You oh, would
2: just lay on the couch, fuck. and I'd be like getting a three and a five-year-old ready, trying to get out of the house by eight, and you would just be like waiting to take a drink, wouldn't even come upstairs.
1: So, the last six months, I would say, um, before uh, I went to rehab, I'd pretty much wake up every day, pull myself off the couch, see if I had a meeting. Um, and then, you know, when Megan would leave, I'd look into the fridge. Um, hopefully, I'd have a 12 pack still. I bought uh, 12 packs of Budweiser's. I'd go to the store every single day and buy at least a 12 pack of Budweiser. But you bought Budweiser. 12 packs
2: so you wouldn't drink them all, right?
1: I mean, to try to somewhat curb it, right? And a pack of, of Parliament Lights, and that was $20.06 uh, every day at the drive through liquor store pitch and Putt that I went to.
2: Do so they knew you by name?
1: Uh, I don't actually knew if they knew my name. They certainly knew my face and my order.
2: <laughs> and you bring the kids because they give them bubble gum.
1: Uh, or the dogs that give biscuits. The, yep. the drive through like right. They're Which, very
0: accommodating. Very <laughs> accommodating. <laughs> yeah.
1: it, was a, it was a five and a half minute drive there each way. Um, and every morning I'd reach in, and I wouldn't just grab one, I'd i'd be grabbing two, and i would literally you know to your point earlier like do i feel any guilt i would reach in and be like okay i guess today is not the day that i'm quitting drinking Mm. and in my head i'd be like fuck, when's that day gonna be because i don't want it to be today and i know i'm not gonna want it to be tomorrow but matt this is a problem now i know this 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 is a real big problem you're gonna have to do something about it and i don't know if i could feel megan's heat or what but i started calling around well, first I called some friends that um, had gotten help. Wait,
2: Matt, you're missing, like, there's a huge pre-point where you started calling friends joining it get sober.
1: What?
0: Remember when I was like, move out?
1: Oh, I downplayed that. Um. <laughs> That's a
0: big thing. Well, I think it's important because there are ultimatums that work in these cases, and some are self-directed.
1: I didn't think it was an ultimatum. She, so she said, mm. I think I'm going to go to a hotel. Well, this is my version. Um, I think I'm going to go to a hotel. No, you like... need time on your own. And I was like, well, that's stupid. Don't do that. And then I forgot about it. And I'm sure Megan's version was very more in, well, intense. You'd have to
2: hear my whole backstory, like the whole thing leading up to it, which we can talk about later. But I was like, you need to move out. This is not healthy for any of us. You need help. I'm not interested in being part of it. Like, This is your shit. Like, You go deal with it.
1: I don't even remember that.
2: And hmm. you were like, no, no, no I'm going to call this person that person. And oh, you went and called like a bunch of why. people and you ended up sense. getting fucking hammered for three days straight for yeah. a weekend. Just calling people being like, I'm getting sober. Like, well, now I'm getting sober. I like,
1: asked how they were getting sober. I, wasn't well, that I, like I was Well, drinking like 36 beers. Yeah. Which
2: made me like literally want to like push him through a glass table.
1: Mm. So I learned about these programs that were like basically like quick detox intake things. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do that. Let me see if there's a program that's like a weekend program. Okay, maybe I'll take a couple days off work. And I thought that like that would do the trick, which wouldn't even have scratched the surface, Mm. not even close. Um, So I guess time for the intervention. Uh, So.
2: Intervention. Intervention. Are you ready for that? I'm ready.
1: August 15th of 18. um, I I grew up, uh, sadly, a a New York Jets fan. And they were (laughs) um, in town. And I thought it was a preseason game. And I thought, oh, why don't I take one of my daughters to do that? That'd be a great dad thing to do. Um, So I did and uh i came back and uh megan was like yeah sure go ahead go for it um now do you know now, i've
2: been working on this right. whole thing there's a whole story to this for like i think two and a half weeks because mm. like doing an intervention is there's so much to it um it takes a lot of a lot of planning which i can tell you about later but go ahead matt
1: um so uh did that uh, came home. I don't know if I went to the bar. Um, I was going to no, the bar. No, you went
2: to the bar every single night. You would take an Uber to Moe's and Joe's.
1: I went a lot. Um, and and usually it would be after drinking like eight or ten beers at home. And then I would go and kind of top it off there. Um, so I uh, woke up in bed that next morning. And, uh, in... Well, you didn't
2: wake up in bed. I woke you up that, the morning of the, inter- like, you're talking about the intervention.
1: Yeah. Well, I heard you guys come through the door.
2: So. Well, no. So we all got there. And I like, you have to know, like, as a person who's married to an alcoholic, my biggest fear was I'd do this intervention and then people would think I was lying and then he or he would like be sober and I would be like wrong, mm. which is like this hugely fucked up thing through this whole thing that I was so petrified that I was like crying wolf. Like, even the day of the intervention, when there's like interventionists here, there's like a first chair, a second chair, his parents, his best friend. Mm-hmm. We have letters written, like we're doing the whole thing. Like mm-hmm. the, the just like you see on TV. And we went we met at a hotel and we had to all caravan over there. And we had to, and it was me and his best friend. We're gonna go get him and bring him. We decided like you decide like where to sit, who's gonna sit in what chair, what letter you're gonna read first. And every minute, every second, I was petrified that he wouldn't that he would be like working or something. <laughs> it was like ten thirty on a Friday and you were still in bed in our bed, which is weird. Hmm. And Mike and I walk in the room.
1: Yeah. And I immediately knew, uh, I was like, I think I just looked at him and said, Oh, he literally,
2: he was like, (laughs) Oh
1: fuck. Yeah.
2: We're like, please meet us downstairs.
1: Yeah. Uh, so walk downstairs and I had ordered, uh, Uber eats McDonald's the night before and hadn't cleaned up. So all my beer cans and McDonald's there is a perfect setting for, for what this ended up being. Um, And I sat down on the couch and uh, I mean, they pretty much did their thing, told them, told me how much they were worried and cared and read these very, very kind letters from people that mattered um, all in our lives. And me being in the state I was, this the selfishness, I didn't give a shit about any of that until.
0: At some point, did you think, fuck it, I'm just going to leave and do my own thing? Or what? Did you know that there was so much at stake?
1: I mean, but I mean, I wasn't. I was stupid but I wasn't like that. But stupid I, I gave an
2: ultimatum in my letter.
1: So Megan's letter is what and it I mean maybe I guess maybe the ultimatum is what hit home but Megan's letter more I thought or at least I tell myself is the 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 way that it described um how you described how it made you your life the girls and the impact that I had because my denial was I am drinking and that's affecting me. I am only affecting a five-foot radius around myself at any time. I'm not affecting you. I'm still pulling my weight because I thought it was. Mm-hmm. I'm still doing certain things around the house or whatever the case may be. So her letter helped helped started to open my eyes that it wasn't just me that I was hurting.
2: What was affecting the kids at this point? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they were really young, I think three mm-hmm. and five, mm-hmm. but little things. Like mm-hmm. Claire was washing her hands constantly. Like they were like she was getting cracked bloody hands mm-hmm. it was like anxiety mm-hmm. not because he was she the kids didn't understand at that age yeah they, they just they sensed. could they could feel my rage the negative energy, mm-hmm. the negative mm-hmm. energy mm-hmm. because i was just mm-hmm. like seething beneath the surface mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they knew that daddy wasn't around mm-hmm. you know um
1: physically and if i was physically then emotionally i wasn't there i was totally absent
2: and, mm-hmm. and caitlin was like literally obsessed with me like what i had nothing to do with you like you didn't even know her. nothing
1: i had no relationship with my youngest daughter wow <clears throat> and i had a very tight relationship with my oldest one um which
2: uh which ended up being unhealthy because she could tell something was wrong yeah. and you needed something so she yeah. kept like trying to make him happy trying to fill that void right which and, was what's making was making me the sickest and,
1: because... and, and I, I wasn't getting the love and going back to earlier when you're asking about my sensitivity yeah I, I have i am sensitive and i you know love languages words of affirmation and intimacy um or just like you know human contact touch hug whatever touch, yeah. physical touch and i wasn't getting that from megan
2: and you were mad that you weren't getting it
1: <laughs> right but i'm not i'm saying not just physical right. like, like sex i'm talking about just in general and so i would hug claire that much tighter you know because mm. that's where i was getting human contact so that probably drove you know what? A, what we're talking about.
2: Yeah, but so we read the letters. Yeah, and you were like kind of a dick to the people.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I Again, because Matt's always so... outsmarting
2: it. He was just kind of like, "Will you shut the fuck up?" I think you said that to the second chair guy. Oh. Like, man, give it a break, dude. Because he was very like impassioned about it. Come on, man! You can do this.
1: Yeah, it felt very cheesy. Um, It's just
2: like TV. Like to be clear, like mm -hmm. it is what you see on TV. Each person reads their letter, and they're like, "Will you do it?"
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I was I'm so pompous. Again, I dismissed pretty much everything. Um, I mean, I found holes in everyone's letters. Um, I disagreed with most of them. I got mad at some of them. I rolled my eyes at other ones um but it was Megan's letter that really did it and uh they said all right we we've picked out a place for you um we spent a lot of time it's in Florida I'm like okay they're like it's going to be 28 days and I was like like record scratch like wait what 28 days what do you think you crazy i can't, can't See, i can't my leave my part job, my important job that i days. go to i go
2: to 3 hours a day drunk <laughs>
1: jeez um <clears throat> And so I thought, there's, there's absolutely no way I can I can do that. And uh, they said, well, actually, um, have you heard of FMLA? Um, no, they're like, you you can go on FMLA, and your job will be protected. And I was like, a family oh, medical leave, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, well, this. I'm like I've seen the TV shows like I gotta go now right They're like yeah <laughs> I'm like, What time's my flight They're like well it's at three but this went really quick so I think we can pull you up on an earlier one I'm like oh great um, So uh, I I mean my head was swimming Didn't I
2: already I think I packed you a bag You or...
1: didn't but I asked you to Yeah so Yeah something was, like that I was like hey can you pack me a bag Because um, I don't even know. I was like just walking around aimlessly, not knowing what to do. My head was going in a thousand different directions. Um, so yeah. So um, uh, this one guy took me to. Uh, the guy was awesome. He was great. The guy that I gave you drank on time. the flight,
2: but they actually like encourage you to because well, you're going go to detox first.
1: Yeah, and uh, I mean alcohol withdrawal, you can get something called uh, DTEs, delirium tremor, or something or other that you can die from. I mean. Um, I don't know. I, I don't want to downplay the seriousness of it, but um, yeah, you can die from it. Absolutely. So, you know, got to the airport, had a couple of beers, um, got on the airplane. Because at this
2: point you're drinking minimum 12 beers a day just to keep yeah. like from shaking.
1: Uh, Well, yeah, because that's what I wanted to do too, but yeah. I but was... that wouldn't
2: even make you drunk. That was just like meh on a normal day for mm-hmm. the most part.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the 12 pack a day was, was the minimum. Weekends, you know, would be maybe double that, something like that. Um, so took a flight down and you got to start a detox, which was, uh, gosh, uh,
2: you were there for, I think nine days, days. seven Seven. or nine days,
1: seven. Um, and I didn't realize that, but they give you medication to come off of it. Mm. That's why detox is important is to kind of like counterbalance. And they um, also look
2: at like your liver and your brain damage and you're not mm -hmm. like handicapped, but you did have damage in your brain that it gets repairable from drinking.
1: Yeah, that was when I went to rehab. They gave you a bunch of like psychological IQ type levels of testing. And they give you like when you get in and then when you get out. And the improvements were absolutely significant. Isn't that
2: crazy? Like you're like you were and hurting yourself. And that was yourself. just
1: after three months. Um, they say it takes your brain at least six months to, to get to repair itself um, in sobriety to where you, a relatively healthy standpoint again. Um, but. Yeah, so did detox for seven days, which all you do is sit around, smoke cigarettes, and you know they give you some drugs that kind of just mellow you out. Um, um, and a couple of people would come in and talk to you, maybe like someone from Narcotics Anonymous or alcohol. Were you Anonymous. resistant
0: to that at all or no? During at that, that point,
1: that. I was like, what else am I going to do? I'm here. No, I made some buddies, and uh, we just sat around and shot the shit. Um, I, this is going to sound horrible, but rehab was fucking awesome. I mean, not just from getting a healthy standpoint, but I hadn't had time to myself. Um, <laughs> again, it sounds incredibly selfish, but when you're, you know, married with kids, I was pretending to be active. I was, I was still doing a job. Um, although I'm sure not at the utmost of my abilities, um, but I was still leading teams and what have you. Um, I had tons of stress in that job. I had, you know, stress of knowing that Megan was upset. All the time and that I wasn't living up to, you know, being a good husband or a good father. So, um... Which once... also
0: kind of brings back to not living up to expectations yeah. growing up Yeah. anyway. A yeah, a cycle
1: that feeds itself, right? Right. Um, manifesting my own whatever. Uh, yeah, so, uh, after seven days in detox, got driven over to this rehab place that, um, I mean, saved my life. I mean, people kind of like, oh, you're being dramatic, but... <laughs> with alcoholism, you either get better or you die. And that's really what happens. Um, I was hearing some stats on, I I listened to some podcasts on it still. And it's like one in 35 alcoholics, you know, actually end up getting help. Um, there's something like 8 million alcoholics in the U S right now. Mm. Um, and it's, it's hard to really quantify what that exactly is. You know, you have to, I don't know how they get to those numbers. So don't, you know, write that down take it to the bank, but it's, it's something along those lines. Um, so uh, going to this uh, rehab place that saved my life, um, it was one that is, uh, it was very confrontational. Um, that was their, their approach to it. So um, are we at that point, I guess, where I'm talking about the rehab experience? Do you want to put any color in between? I was just
2: going to say, like, just to give you an idea of how Matt was in his mind at this point, and this is part of my work um you got you went to detox you got to rehab and you were like psycho about what i had packed for you Mm -hmm. like it was not up to the standards so you were like calling me like i was
1: having tea times at fucking right like he was like i need my needlepoint belt (laughs) and where's
2: my (laughs) tennis racket and yeah literally like literally and he's like and i need this sweater and that and like calling me and calling me about it and they give you like a family therapist and like a coach like there's all this help for the the family system and this is how sick I was, where I was like, oh, I have to send this stuff to Matt. Like, I like I have to. And they're like, no, you don't. He's in rehab. Like, he doesn't need this tennis racket in his baseball mitt. Like, this isn't a club <laughs> that he's playing at. Like, But that's kind of where Matt's head was mentally about his opinion of himself. And, like, he's made a lot of progress, obviously, since then. Um, but I just remember thinking, like, oh yeah, I have to send all this stuff to him. But then also equally being so mad and being like, why do I need to set my day and send you all this stuff because you need to get sober, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah.
1: So when I got to rehab, you know, they take your phone and they, uh, big intake process. Um, and then, you know, they walk me to basically like a little apartment kind of deal, um, which was right on a golf course in Florida um very nice um and uh, i was a part of this quote-unquote professionals program which um was just a a nicer there were a lot of younger people in the program that still needed to be taught how to kind of like maybe a little failure to launch so they weren't used to you know being an adult but neither were you to be fair yeah yeah this is what we learned
2: later remember when you called me you were like did you know pop tarts are six dollars? And I was oh like, God, yeah. yeah, I did. Cause they give them like a budget. You're like a hundred dollars yeah. a week for oh, grocery God, bills. Yeah, yeah, Like they really go back to like pre college and like reteach right. skills. Right,
1: mm. right. So I was in the, this professional program, which had a little bit of nicer uh, accommodations, but I remember walking in and it was the first time where it kind of all hit me and I just broke down and I felt like, truly lonely and i you know started writing which i never did you know in journals and uh, i couldn't call anyone i don't think i was able to talk to megan for like seven days well they
2: treated it as like a break like they were like megan this is as much for you as for him like you mm-hmm. need a, you need to like rest your nervous system like consider this a gift where you can like
1: mm-hmm.
2: not have to be because you get to a point where it's like is like you get on alert before all of this it would be like is he too drunk is he driving are the kids mm-hmm. there you know, because you were getting to the point where you were essentially drinking and driving, but yeah, I was. It, it was like you, the spouse and the family, need the time away from the alcoholic or the person with an addiction just as much as the addict, addictive person needs to get sober.
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, rehab, uh, you you have um, you're, you're given a schedule each week, and it's basically therapy all day, and there's just different types of therapy. Um, so like one of the classes, I guess, for lack of a better term is, you know, learning about your origin and your family structure and your family dynamics and going through all your history. Um, it's called clinical philosophy was, was the class. And that one was really intense because that's pretty much everyone putting their story out in the line and you're with all these other people. Um, and it was, it was kind of uh, quote unquote funny that I was the alcoholic because I was the old fuddy-duddy boring alcoholic where, you know, pills are such a, a huge thing nowadays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was wow. pills or, you know, fentanyl or heroin or whatever the case. There was only probably five of us that were really alcoholics out of, gosh, I don't know, 100, 200, you know, people. Or it's a, it a small community because you pretty much take over this apartment complex. Um, so they drive you to these uh, to, the, to this building in these vans, the druggie-buggy, they call it. And um, you'd sit in class, in well, class, in these different sessions, um, and uh, they'd be themed differently. Um, and every night, I think it was like, I don't know, 6 to 8 or 4 to 6.30, something like that, you'd have what was called your primary. And you'd have your primary therapist, um, who was your main it's therapist. like your homeroom. Yeah, I guess that'd be a good way to put it. And you'd have uh, eight, maybe, other people in the class. And that's where the shit got like down and dirty and you all sit in a circle and he would lead conversations, but you were there to help each other and you would call each other out. And I mean, you did some crazy exercises like what are your 10 deepest, darkest secrets that you just put out there in a room full of strangers, essentially, that you end up building quite strong relationships with. I mean, you're all there trying to get sober now. Granted, some of us had different motives like... I didn't know if I was going to uh, maintain a marriage. I had that fear mm-hmm. hanging over my head, and that I didn't think would be able. To, I didn't think I'd be able to carry on uh, not being married. Um, but for the first couple of weeks, I thought I was doing all this better improvement, and uh, it kind of gets to your turn in the circle of primary. And when it got to me, um, and I'd say my piece, everyone looked at me and were just like fuck you, you're full of shit. And I'm like, what are you talking Cause about? Because there was
2: no emotion. You said all the right words. Right. They're like, right.
1: you're. they called me like, you're walking uh, sales PowerPoint. And and, and I, mm. I thought I was being sincere and earnest but and that's, honest. But that's
2: how out of touch with yourself right. and your gut yep. that you were. And that's 100%. how he was functioning his entire life.
1: Yep, 100%. I didn't realize that. And it took, they ended up after two weeks, which I, I did some learning about, you know, what the disease and, and uh, different coping mechanisms. It was during and, family week. So Megan came down. They brought Megan down. And of course, I'm like, hey, what's up, babe? You know, open arms <laughs> and. I'm cured. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't exactly the same back. And because well, um,
2: then I joined primary group and met with mm-hmm. this therapist and they get like a whole nother version of whatever he's been saying. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that was like one of the most intense weeks of my life.
1: Yeah, me too. And that's when I say confrontational. That's when you know Megan hit me between the eyes. And earlier, I with her letter, I got a little bit of a taste of what she was going through. But in family week, when she participated in the actual therapy, I actually
2: went to all of his like they gave me different assignments. I went to all the same therapies in participating in group, mm-hmm. like any one of the alcoholics, in mm-hmm. some of them with them. It's crazy we got to tell her about the role play thing we had to do with the kids oh my
1: god yeah so in primary she uh she put it all out there and that that and then the role play there were two instances that really broke me and helped me really see what i had done um it was
2: the first time i had ever verbalized how much seething anger i was full of like i remember yelling at you and then like what it's interesting is like everyone like liked him and I don't. And people, I didn't make people not like you, but you were mad because people were like, "Wow, you were a shitty dad, or you weren't great to your wife," and they were like, kind of joining my side in the conversation.
1: Well, right? Uh, like,
2: I don't mean it like that, but
1: well, they thought I was a pedophile.
2: Okay, well, that, well that's a whole <laughs> other story. <laughs>
1: Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, this took a
0: turn.
2: But I didn't. Yeah. I, that was not me saying. But anyway, so then, like, through this, when they realized he was out of touch with himself. They realized that he used i don't know if i'm saying this right but like a, an appearance to cloak what's really happening behind yeah. the scenes so yeah. while i was at family week they basically what's it called that when they did there's a name for it they banned him from wearing nice clothes basically he had yeah. to dress in no shoes with a ripped shirt and no needlepoint
0: belt no <laughs>
2: needlepoint like for a week while i was there he was not allowed to look how he likes to portray to oh, the world.
1: Gosh, I forget what it was called. It was like a something ban. Um, I forget what it was called. But uh, I, first time he said, okay, you you can't look nice anymore. I came in in like gym shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> and he's like, you did not meet the assignment. <laughs> he's like, you, did, you did not understand the assignment. Right. <laughs> Um so then you had to I match like, your
2: insides. You had to make your insides how you feel on the inside right. match the outside. What was right. the assignment?
1: So then I went home and um and you know I'd made friends so like we'd hang out in between classes and just like college like you have an hour mm-hmm. in between classes so go back to your apartment or whatever. And I was like fuck it they want to see blah 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 so I like took a t-shirt, ripped it up, took ashtrays full of cigarettes and ashes, covered it up. I had long hair by that point, you know. Took all the product or whatever out and like you know afroed it up, and uh, didn't wear shoes. Didn't wear shoes and came in. he's like, all right. You no, you're right here. They made him wear that for like I two think weeks. two weeks. Yeah, wow, so two which weeks was really for hard for
2: Matt to yeah. face the world yeah. with how he really felt, like for mm. both things to be in sync.
1: And it helped me be a lot more honest <laughs> in in my groups and sessions because it just was like, screw it, you know, I'm just gonna, I don't know. It helped me stop pretending intense, and yeah i guess yeah you're right pretending
2: yeah but then on the kid front so they you know mm. so i didn't yeah, can we clear this pedophile okay thing, he's please. definitely <laughs> not a pedophile okay he's definitely not a pedophile what was happening at home was matt was so in need of like love and attention mm-hmm. and i was like repulsed by him at this mm-hmm. point like literally couldn't even like stand the smell of him because mm-hmm. you also smelled terrible yeah. he would always go cuddle with claire like he would go sleep in her bed or whatever and I never ever was like oh I think something's going on but I didn't it made me uncomfortable like it was just it wasn't normal for an a a father to constantly want to like receive like cuddling from his daughter and I just thought it was unhealthy and unhealthy that he wasn't equaling his like attention desire to the other child Mm -hmm. And so, in family week, there's this—I forget what the session's called, but it's like
1: experiential or something.
2: It's experiential therapy, but basically, they have other members of this tight group play the role of your children, and well, everybody in your family, everyone in your family. And I mean, I can't remember the whole thing, but I—I mm. re- I remember it. Other people draw from their experience, and I remember it—it it, it kind of progressed to the point of showing us what our children would be like at like 18 or 19, if. Matt had continued favoring Claire as the child that was perfect. And continued ignoring Mm. Caitlin and what our marriage would look like. And I mean, people were crying. Matt was crying. I'm probably not doing the story justice. Yeah.
1: So they 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 say, Okay, who are the the core nucleus members of your family? And, you know, every class had ten to fifteen people. They say, Okay, um, someone you're going to be caitlin matt's daughter youngest daughter you're going to be claire matt's oldest daughter megan you're going to be megan uh so and so you're going to be matt's mom so and so you're going to be matt's dad and then they'd be like uh all right megan go ahead tell matt what you you know really have been wanting to tell him and man she uh she unloaded both barrels um as she should have and it was like you are not the king anymore of this castle and the only reason I'm here is for the kids. I want nothing to do with you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, I et cetera. Wanted, My
2: whole thing was I wanted to break the cycle of addiction. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want my kids to right. have to deal with this. She I want them to too. have new tools. And for my for my seat at the table, Matt had been the, the king of the castle. It was whatever Matt said, mm-hmm. whatever he thought, whatever answer was his, was right. Like, I was so tired of feeling crazy. I was so tired of, of tiptoeing around his alcoholism. And if he was too drunk, I mean... It took over every aspect of our life, our finances, Mm. our social, who we hung out with. Like we had some friends we stopped kind of talking to. That was probably like my very early warning sign. Um, And I was just like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like I am not letting you and your disease control me. Like I, I want better for our kids. I want better for ourselves. This isn't the life that I want. And it felt so good it was the first time i'd ever just like mm-hmm. let it out yeah.
1: and then uh i talked to one of the the youngest this guy who was a younger daughter and he coincidentally or now i believe everything happens for a reason he he also had some um abandonment issues and so he really channeled that into caitlin and was asking me like how come you don't love me how come you don't spend so like mm. all of that like i mean I, I literally crumbled to the floor i never thought that that was possible to like get that weak in your knees or whatever but i crumbled to the floor and then everyone left and um i mean i'm sure that was intentional and so i was just left there and uh they put um like they put warnings out for kid people that they're have had tough days so i got one of those warnings and i'd had some counselors would come talk to me and um, it was the most impactful thing. I mean, that is what broke me. And that was like two weeks into, um, but you needed Like you need, they day. need to <gasps> break you. Absolutely. It's like the whole Absolutely thing. Absolutely needed that to happen. Needed to cut you open before they could stitch you back up. Um, that needed to happen to really get through to me. And from there was, you know, day one after that. It basically
2: shows you like, if you don't get sober, this is the trajectory of your life. Mm-hmm. Like you're not married. One kid is, you know, has abandonment issues and hatred the other one's favored and can't do anything right and then probably has matts perfectionism issues you know like it was intense
1: yeah so um you know you do there are 28 increments so I did a second 28 and uh, they still didn't think I was quite ready so halfway third through the third 28 was like all right um you're probably you're kind of getting it and I don't know if you're using the best of your, you know, your time here. Um, so I think I ended up doing 78 days. And I think I know I did 78 days um, at the program, which was awesome. It was incredible because I was able to read a ton, um, build relationships, not having your phone. I ended up getting my phone back maybe two-thirds of the way through, um, but I almost didn't want it. Um, I was I was able to sit outside, and it sounds so corny, but like appreciate nature. Uh, it's like or, a
0: trigger for you, the phone.
1: Yeah, the trigger. I mean, they, they literally, when I was leaving, they were building a, um, they were setting up a building for digital addiction I and mean, that's a hundred percent real. So there were kids were starting to come in with digital addiction. I need too. to enroll in that. Yeah. <laughs> too. No kidding. <clears throat> um, so it was, I made some incredible relationships. Uh, one of the classes I took was, uh, process addiction. And this goes back to what I was saying on how it's not alcohol. Alcohol happened to be the thing that I was, you know using the most but it's addiction could be in any form gambling porn cigarettes uh phone digital i I mean anything so i had to try to identify they, they had us graph out all substances we used in our entire life or anything that would uh you know you could possibly get addicted to and kind of take a good look at it and i felt that really helped me coming out because you know i didn't know if i was a gambling addict for example but it showed me that like maybe you just shouldn't do that why even mess with it so like i don't mess with that anymore and
2: uh but even now you have to be careful just because you have to be aware that you like a dopamine hit like finding the perfect thing online shopping like we always like talk about it like okay is this do you really need to be buying this and doing this or do you like the process and the hit of it and then receiving it.
1: Right. And I also don't want it to make it sound like, okay, 78 days, done, click. No, that's the beginning of the journey. Um, when I left there, I, uh, moved home and oh, this no, was a you didn't move thing. home. You moved to a halfway house moved back to Atlanta. Gosh, I almost want, I almost wanted to throw a, a chair across the room. Um, I had weekly calls with Megan and my primary therapist. And, uh, one of the last ones was, um, Matt, uh, Megan's not ready for you to move into back into the house, and because this whole
2: time you thought, okay, this when this is over, I go home and like life's mm-hmm. normal, See and I was like, yeah. no,
1: nope. Um, and a lot of people they encourage to stay there because this was in Delray, Florida, um, and it's like the self-proclaimed uh, uh, rehab capital of, of of the world. And I made a lot of connections there, and there's just a huge uh, sober community um, that participates with all the different rehabs, they encouraged us to go off campus. This is, you know, before COVID. So I would go to meetings, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings every day. Um, I'd go out to uh, dinner or lunch with um, people that I would call um, that were uh, sober buddies. buddies. And uh, what they were teaching you was how to reach out and get over yourself and learn to ask for help because you also didn't have any money. So you would have to not only reach out and ask someone to hang out with you, but also to pay for your dinner or whatever. Excuse me. So sounds
0: like my whole twenties, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's
1: right. Um, so that when you came home, you would do the same thing. Um, so that that was an important part of it. So I, they they said, okay, research uh, halfway houses, which are apartments that make you take drug tests and uh, you know keep a clean keep a clean apartment, go to meetings, uh, make sure you have a job, which you know I still fortunately uh, had a job waiting for me when I came back. Um, not that they were ecstatic about that, of course. Um, uh, but came back and I lived in this halfway house for seven and a half months. Wow. Um, How did you deal with that, Megan?
2: I wasn't ready. I was still doing work myself. And so mm-hmm. for me, like when Matt went away, even though I still was a single parent where I didn't know anyone to not have the burden of mm-hmm. anger and rage
1: it was easier. for It her. was easier.
2: Like, and I through up until three years ago, I've been the primary adult of Mm -hmm. master planner of everything or like I was just used to it. Like, so the only thing that was hard was there was a long period of time where I didn't really have a lot of adult interaction like on the weekends or it would only be like through work because my kids were so young at the time. So every day was just like all the things you have to do and, you know, trying to find downtime, but I was just used to it. Like that was just my life. And I didn't have to be angry while I was doing it. I could actually enjoy it. Mm. Like a lot of times I was so passive aggressively, like waiting for him to notice that I'd be like raging and be like, look at all the things I did and waiting for him to be like, thank you. Which Mm. of course never came because he didn't give a shit. But, um,
1: we had a couple of good, um, even though we'd only been here a couple of years, there were some good friends uh, that mm-hmm. helped Megan, a uh, next door neighbor, um, and then uh, another friend from, from work that were really good they to me. They were her. so
2: good to me. Like they took me on vacations. They had me come out for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out our next door neighbor in Morningside, his husband also was an addict. And I'll mm-hmm. never forget this. The day after we sent Matt away, um, he came to my door with an apple pie hmm. and was just like I've been there before too. He like, he didn't even say the words of like, he's in rehab, he's an addict or whatever. Like he just knew. It turns out he kind of knew all along cause he had seen it himself with mm-hmm. his husband. And so he ended up just being like a really good, yeah. they were still good friends with him, but just, yeah. i never met someone like that was when I had my moment of like, there's other people like me, like
1: other mm-hmm. people have
2: been through this and I don't have to like carry this burden of shame. It was like the biggest gift someone could have given me was just to be like, I totally know what you're going through.
0: What I'm hearing is that, so I'm I'm noticing as you're saying this is that both of you feel so isolated in this, but Mm -hmm. then have all of this support kind of come out of the woodwork where Mm -hmm. it's like, I didn't die, I didn't blow up. I didn't, you know, my kids are alive. Yeah. And I'm wondering, Matt, what did it look like staying sober did you you know like mm. i've watched all those interventions mm-hmm. where you know the the chance of relapse is so high
1: yeah that is high i mean again it's hard to to truly measure it but they say 80 to 90 percent yeah of, uh, relapse in their first year um and it's hard to track who relapses because no one's going to come back and tell you oh hey guess what i relapsed um but uh it's do, it's continuing to do the things that I started doing in rehab, which was going to meetings uh, every single day. And the things that I did in my halfway house, um, which was...
2: Maybe the halfway thing was a gift. Like you really had yes. to relearn how to Well, be an adult in your real life.
1: So the hardest thing is for everyone's <clears throat> initial inclination is to jump back into your family. Like, I, want, I need to make up for this. I want to be a part of my family. So that was always the excuse. And like in rehab, they, you know, they didn't let us talk to them. That much they wanted to break that because everyone just thinks that that's just such a given. I need to talk to my wife. I need to talk to my girlfriend. Or I need to talk to my kids. No, you don't. they are going to be fine. You need to worry about you. You need to focus you because if you're not healthy, you're not going to be able to be in a position to get to do anything for them. So you need to make sure that you are sober for eternity.
2: Well, then you have to learn how to be a couple with a person who's never been sober. That's a whole other thing. That's well, like that's a whole, that's a whole other yeah journey, but.
1: So getting back, you know, um, I ended up... Uh, but dis- man,
2: you've never wanted to drink again since then. You've had like some well, hard moments or we talked through like a Super Bowl party. I but, mean, like-
0: the fucking pandemic happened. You know what so, I mean? Like but That was a gift.
2: That was like was, a gift. For
1: me, it was a huh. gift. For most people, yeah, that really spiraled things. But yeah. what that enabled me to do was... Okay, so the reason the halfway house was a gift was because it it enabled me to have time to myself to do things to take care of myself. I went to what's called intensive outpatient therapy, IOP. So every night for three hours, I would go do some of the same things I was doing um, where I was away, but just after work. And like that was a continuation, like some people just do that and maybe that's fine for them. But like that wouldn't have worked for me. I needed to go away so that I was truly immersed and broken because otherwise you go to something like an IOP You say you work all day, you go do that for three hours, get super emotional, but then you got to zip yourself back up and pretend like you're back Mm. in the real world again. Mm -hmm. But for me, the continuation was good still, you know, practicing, working the muscle. So I did that every night. Um, I did men's groups. I did AA meetings every day. Um, I was busy, you know, um, you know, 6 a.m. till 11 p.m. And I made sure that I was. You know, doing the readings I wanted to do, whether it be out of uh, you know the AA books called the Big Book um, or other just in general books that are self-improvement type things, and doing that for seven months got me into some some good practices and um, helped my self-awareness, um, helped break down more of the denial. My denial's still there, but I can catch it better now. Where I'm like oh, you're just, that's the story you're telling yourself, and that's really not what's actually happening, Matt. So having that awareness, I can course correct a lot sooner. Um, But Megan, you know, you said I haven't wanted to drink. Yeah, absolutely, I have. But not
2: like people would think. Like you're not like everyday jonesing for it. I was
1: for a long time. Well, Um,
2: that's natural, but then you... Learned what your triggers are. We practiced like, okay, well, if we go to this party and this is happening, we stayed playing. away from like bonfires or like big sporting events where you knew that was going to be like a thing. Right. Um, but you kind of became like
0: a model AA citizen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank well, you. the overachiever. Right. <laughs> uh, but I, but also, you know, like I've gone out with you guys. And I remember that, that dinner last year with with the other parents. Like, and, do
2: you mean the one when I couldn't get out of bed on Sunday? Yeah. You know,
0: Megan is not sober. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it, it, I, I was really dumbfounded. And really the reason why I wanted to talk to you was how you acted. That, you know, we went out to a bar after you were cool as a cucumber, Mm. you bought everybody drinks, Mm. you know, and, and we're fine drinking water or seltzer or whatever it was. And I'm like, is this for real? Like, what kind of therapy do you go to where you can go from where you were, where I guess it's your rock bottom to being cool? Or is that a dangerous situation?
1: So both. Um, highly not recommended when you're first getting sober, yeah. um, because uh, trigger is is a word that's used a lot, um, and they're they're out there. If you think about it, my life, everything I did involved alcohol. So when I was reassimilating back into the real world, every time I went to a gas station and saw the cooler, every time I went to a grocery store and saw the beer aisle, every time I went to any event, I mean, places that sell alcohol are increasing. I used to only go and bring my kids to places that sold alcohol so that I could drink. Now, obviously I'm not looking for that, but I'm noticing that it is everywhere. So everything I was doing was doing the first time sober. And like Megan was saying, I would need exit plans or strategies. And um, I I really integrated myself heavy into uh, AA. And a lot of those practices were calling someone. It's really building up your network. I mean, what AA is, in my opinion, is half getting all of guilt and any potential things that would cause you anxiety off your chest um, and trying to be a good person and then building relationships with people that can keep you sober that can help keep you accountable because as a group you can succeed when you're on your own you're going to be more susceptible to failure so Um, I dove headfirst into that and that is really what helped me and over time I gradually kind of became better but I always erred on the side of caution of like if I even thought that like hey it's going to make me uncomfortable I was either just not going to do it or I'd be like hey Megan if I if we go and you know I say uh, you know banana pie that means let's let's get out of here or you know whatever the case and uh, I haven't said this yet but um I Megan is, is the most amazing person in the world to me, um, the fact that she's given me a thousand chances, but she was so incredibly supportive through all of it. Um, I'm so glad that, that she made me work uh, to get back into the good graces and earn it. And That's why we were saying the pandemic was, was helpful, because I was able to re back into my family's life. So even though I was living in the halfway house, I would come over during the day. First, it was once a week, then twice a week over the course of seven months then you know towards the end remember it was when we first started coming
2: over and we had to like you would just be like party guy and i was like no <laughs> <Hold> <laughs> wait <on>. a minute <laughs> remember we had to have that conversation and be like well no if you're gonna come over like you gotta do laundry you gotta unload the dishwasher like that was part of the assimilation like
1: oh yeah so another part of the program is uh acts of service and you're just constantly can't be thinking about yourself because it's all about the long play and you'll feel internal fulfillment if you're always giving and giving yourself away. So my mindset was trying to be, what can I do for someone else? And it, it, it got pretty excessive. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was I was trying to do dishwasher's laundry to the point I was just exhausted um, all the time.
0: That's why you were washing that lady's car came over to help babysit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember
1: that. <laughs> but, but I think COVID
2: was a gift to you because everything was closed. So hmm. Matt's, Matt had triggers at home, but I feel like mm-hmm. you had learned better ways to deal with them. But, mm-hmm. you know, the concert venue type thing and baseball games oh, and things never. things that you... He could explore life without like build that muscle. And the world was like, there wasn't FOMO. But did you feel,
0: but did you feel like, fuck, why can't I keep doing those things? I love basketball or baseball games or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. I mean, the way to think about it is, um, this was the, 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 the hand that was dealt me. This is what I have. You know, some people can drink fine and, and alcohol is, is not a problem for them. For me, it is. That's just what We tell our way. kids
2: that he's allergic to it. Yep. Mm. He's allergic true. to daddy juice, it, it which is, is true, but yeah. they totally comprehend it. Yeah.
1: It's an allergy of the, of the mind and body. And it's just what happened to me. Do sometimes I feel sorry for myself and it sucks? Yeah, but it's called playing the tape. And my tape goes something like this. If I start having one, I'm going to want two, three, four, five, six, seven, Mm -hmm. eight, nine, ten. Even if I try to control myself today and have one or two, I know my brain. We say that, you know, alcoholism is is outside the door doing pushups, waiting for me to have a weak moment to jump right back in. So I'll justify whether it's in a week or a year or 10 years that eventually I'll justify that I'm strong enough to have a drink. Well, I know that if I have one, eventually, it's going to turn exactly back into what it used to be. And that's a life where I'm going to lose my house, my family, my kids, everything that actually matters something to me. And that's just not worth it for me. And that's how it started. And as I got through the program and worked through all the steps, you know, there's something called the promises where, um, you lose the attraction for alcohol. And that happened to me at about 11 months, 10 and mm. a half, 11 months where it, I can truly say that it did not say recoil like a flame. It did not, wasn't attractive to me. Sure. Sometimes we're outside on a, at a golf course and my buddy has a cold beer there for two or three seconds. Yeah, that looks, that looks great. But you know what? Play the tape. Boom. Where would that be? But how many
2: times have you said how much better you like your life sober?
1: Oh my God. It's, it's, I can't believe how much, I don't want to say wasted because this path is what If I tried to get sober when I was in my 20s or even earlier, a day earlier, it wouldn't have worked because I wouldn't have believed that I needed to do it. Until I saw the physical um, ramifications and the withdrawal symptoms, that was what really proved to me. Otherwise, I'd still be out doing quote-unquote research. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't believe it. I would be doing it for the wrong reasons, which are for other people. This time I did it for myself. Um, to get myself better, and I am, in my opinion, a hundred times of a better and more productive uh, human being, and I I love life, and I can't imagine my life without alcohol in it again. And
2: when you see really drunk people, you're like, gross. (laughs) You're like, I can't believe that. I feel
1: shame because I'm like, that was me. Wow, what an idiot and an asshole I was.
2: It probably helps. I'm not a huge drinker. Like, I'd rather have, like, a million and one cookies instead.
1: Yeah, back to the support of Megan, I mean... Ideally, you know, some people are like, well, this is your problem. You should figure it out. Um, it shouldn't stop me from drinking. I but mean,
0: isn't that a big misconception yeah. that it is one
1: person's it's fam- problem? It's a family. As much as it sucks, it is a family problem. That made me
2: so angry for a while. Like mm-hmm. so angry. Like yeah. I was like, it was like, I mean, because in a perfect world, an ideal sober scenario, we shouldn't even ever have alcohol in our house. Mm-hmm. I should never have a drink. hmm I didn't fully subscribe to that. Like, I am respectful of it. We don't keep beer and things
1: I know he would really like. We didn't have anything in the house at first.
2: We didn't at all. But, like, I will still have a glass of wine. I will still go out to dinner and have a drink. I will still, once in a very blue moon, drink too much. But, like, it's not a thing for me. But Mm -hmm. it is a family thing. Mm -hmm. And he was sick and I was just as sick. I mean, you have to have a certain type of, like, you know, there has to be certain ingredients in order to be in a codependent relationship that involves alcoholism. So I was just as sick. And so I had to do a ton of work and I've always been a big believer in work. So this wasn't new, but like that shame piece, like you're talking about, but it's it's all family, you know? And so even our kids, like they're in therapy Mm -hmm. and they're doing stuff because even though they don't know, they know something. And I think both of us are like, if we can give our kids a gift and have them have like a super strong tool belt, and not do this, like then we can change that generational pattern. Mm
0: -hmm. How did you, what made you stay Megan? What made you fight so hard? Hmm. Y'all, I was literally on the edge of my seat with Matt's story. Listening to this with thoughts of compassion for Matt's journey and also kind of knowing the type too, especially when someone is in denial I was blown away by his strength to stay sober in a world where drinking and drinking heavily is kind of the norm. And I was floored by his wife, Megan's commitment to his health and the future of their family's health. We'll hear more about her side next week in the episode called Getting Him Sober. Matt and Megan have been kind enough to offer connecting with them, and I put their info in the show notes. I hope you'll save this episode, share it far and wide, and subscribe to my weekly emails at allisonhair.com so you get next week's episode delivered right to your inbox next week. Big thanks to Matt and Megan for being so brave and vulnerable to share with us, but mostly for their strength to be so courageous to do the hard stuff and do the hard stuff continuously to break the cycle for their family it's so admirable. And be very clear on this. It is culture changing. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next week.